Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's well. Uh, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur. I said, nearly said, hi, it's welcome. Um, <laughs> I am very, very pleased, grateful and privileged to have the great Nolan Bushnell here um, with us on the Disruptive Entrepreneur. I read his book, Finding the Next Steve Jobs, in 2013. I loved that book. In fact, Nolan, I, I, I very much changed our recruitment process um, and I'll look at how we hired people pretty much on the basis of your book. One thing that I remember very clearly in your book, you were talking about interview questions and you were talking about asking people in interviews how many bits of chewing gum they thought would be stuck under the tables in the canteen and other left field questions which were designed to I guess, get a more creative response um, and maybe stop people from giving you the same old uh, stock answers in interviews. That's stuck out um, the most in the book and uh, for me. And ever since, because I, I have nearly 100 staff, we've hired, you know, probably a few thousand people over the years. Um, and I, I always try and ask questions that the candidate doesn't know where I'm going so that I can find out about them without them answering in a way that they've studied on Google for the answer to the question. I know yes. this is probably the worst introduction and first question <laughs> in a podcast ever, but it's just stuck with me, for, forgive the pun, and, and I, I think about it every time I interview someone. What would Nolan say? Nolan wouldn't ask them, so what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Tell me a bit about yourself. Nolan would be asking them how many bits of chewing gum are stuck under the chair and other funky questions. So why, why do you take that route when it comes to interviewing people, Nolan? In the, in the final analysis, what you really want with your employees is creative thinking. You really want them to be a little bit out of the box. You know, another, another thing that I really believe in is embracing the crazies. You know, um, there's, it's so easy to become cookie cutter in this world. And, uh, and if you want, you know, maybe it's okay to be co cookie cutter if you're a brain surgeon or something, but most rest of the times, what you want is out of the box thinking. And what is out of the box thinking? It's kind of crazy. You, in order to be a disruptor, you have to be a bit of an anarchist. Um, because disruption by definition says, hey, this is the different rules. Like, I look at Steve Wozniak as an interesting guy. I've known him for years and years. And he is a massive practical joker. He's come up with some of the most creative practical jokes the world has ever seen. And it's a way that he is, he's a disruptive thinker. He's an anarchist. And, uh, 
And, and I think that uh, Apple Computer and the kinds of designs that they had in the early days under, under Woz uh, is representative of that. I mean, remember, the, the personal computer really hadn't been invented yet. So nobody knew really what this thing was going to be good for or, or even what it did. And so there were no cookie cutter answers even possible. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that. So most people must know who you are, Nolan, but for those that don't, I'll do a proper intro in the post-edit. Um, but uh, famously um, hired and uh, a mentor of sorts to Steve Jobs, founded Atari, Chuck E. Cheese, um, wrote uh, the book Finding the Next Steve Jobs, which, as I said, is probably is probably in my five all-time favorite books. And I think I've read maybe 5,000 books, if you count all the audios as well. So I was very pleased when you agreed to be on the show. Um, now, Nolan, I'm going to do something a bit different for you because you're a very special guest. And I'm going to create three rounds, if you don't mind. So round one is going to be about Atari stroke gaming. Round two is going to be about Nolan, the entrepreneur, and your entrepreneurial experience. And then round three, we've got quite a few quick fire questions. So are you up for that? Game, game on. All right, let's do it. So um, you are considered as one of the, the fathers or even the father um, of the gaming industry. Can you take us back to how it all started, even before Atari, and how Atari came about and what you intended Atari to be? I often think that life is a series of interesting accidents. And... Um, I was probably the only engineer, engineering student, who had two things happen to them quite by serendipity. One was I put myself through college working at an amusement park, and I became manager of the games department of the amusement park. And I had an arcade. And so, that gave me the understanding of the cost of coin-operated games, what coin-operated games needed to earn, what coin-operated games needed to, to fascinate. At the same time, I was pursuing an electrical engineering degree at the University of Utah, who had a magic professor called David Evans, who was the guy who was the first to put connect video screens up to large-scale computers. Uh, I shouldn't say the first, but... And whenever you had video monitors, and they were vector graphics at the time, but don't want to get into the technical weeds, the um, some guys at MIT wrote a game called Space War. And it tended to go out with all the, the digital equipment company uh, computers. And I had a fraternity brother that said, let's go up to the computer center at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to show you something that will knock your socks off. Well, wanting my socks knocked off, I went there. 2 o'clock in the morning, we basically broke into the computer system, or the the computer lab, and we played Space War. And I instantaneously knew that if I had this screen with a coin slot in my arcade, it would earn 
serious money. But then you divide 25 cents by three minutes into a half a million dollar computer and the math didn't work. But I, uh, I just kind of filed it away and said, well, maybe, maybe someday. Graduated, went to uh, Silicon Valley, honed my digital skills at a company called Ampex. And one day, the cost of semiconductors, uh, you know, MSI, uh, TTL semiconductors, dropped through the floor. So a chip that used to cost $2.80 was now 15 cents. And I thought, ha, I'll bet I can do that. And uh, I just kind of went down the rabbit hole. I did a couple of designs that were totally impractical. And then I came up with this idea of, of creating a, uh, a digital signal generator to play a video game. And uh, I was off to the races. And that's creating a product, building a company that's altogether different. How did you as an engineer, I guess, at heart, build a, you know, a very successful company? Again, that was a mistake. <laughs> or no, a, a, an accident. Um, I thought, okay, I have no money, and uh, I had built this little prototype, and so I said, what I need to do is license it to a company that has a factory and has money. And so I licensed the the, the machine. It was called Computer Space, and it was basically a clone of the Space War that I'd played at the computer at the computer center. And, uh, and the, the game became a modest success and I had a royalty stream and here's the, the other advantage then, or, or, or serendipity. The, the company that I licensed it to was run by a bunch of bozos and, you know, they were just totally incompetent. And, uh, and I thought I, I could just see all the mistakes they were making. And so they wanted me to kind of hitch my wagon to them. They, they hired me over as chief engineer to get the technology implemented. So I left Ampex, went to Nutting Associates. And, uh, and when it came time for the next game, they wanted me to design this. And I said, I'll do it under contract, but I don't want to work here. Um, I actually gave them an opportunity to give me a whole bunch of shares and, and uh, you know, sweeten the pot. And they turned it down because they were bozos. But, uh, but anyway, um, and so I got, another, got a contract from them. I got another contract. And the idea was that we were going to be the studio that created games for big companies. And then, um, and so I had enough money that I could hire somebody and the um the ga the guy that i hired al alcorn his learning project was a ping pong game and uh because it was really simple and i thought no he can knock that this out in a week but it'll give him a good idea of what we're doing because the technology was brand new and really different and um and the game became fun it became really, really, really fun. And, uh, and so 
I took it to the company in Chicago that I had a contract with, and I said, do, do you want this game? And, <clears throat> and at the time, coin-operated games, there was never a coin-op game that was strictly two-player. They wanted a one-player, and the one-player game of Pong was not that fun. And so they turned it down. And when I was flying back from Chicago, just before at the airport, I called the office, and they'd put a Pong in a location, and it had just crushed the cash box. It was, it was so, the cash box was so full that the machine quit being able to take any more tokens. They thought it was a failure, but having too small a cash box, that's, that's easy to solve. And so I thought, hey, I'll just build these things, and it's earning so much money that we can just put them out even if we can't sell them. And so we took all the money that we had, and we built 12 units. We actually could afford to do 13, but I was a little superstitious. And we built the 12, sold them immediately, built 35, sold them immediately, and we were off to the races. Great. And did you ever imagine that Atari would be, you know, such a big, great leading, um, you know, games company? Or was it just something you just thought you were having fun with in your sort of mad professor engineering room? You know, people often ask me that. And I always thought that video games were going to be massive and disruptive. And I felt that if we scrambled really hard, we could get a little piece of it. Um, but since we didn't have a lot of money, since we didn't have a factory, I mean, our first attempt at manufacturing was sort of, you know, put up some balloons and put the party on here. I mean, it was, it was, we, we didn't have any processes. We didn't have shipping receiving. We didn't have, we, we'd even forgotten to, to buy the shipping crates. So we had to run things around on a truck that we bought used, uh, <laughs> you know, old furniture delivery truck that we bought, that we, we delivered around. Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts, for any training that we might run. Not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a, a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. 
So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. But we had one thing. We really understood the technology and we were more creative. And so every time sales started slowing down on the last game, we started, we introduced a new one. And slowly but surely, we got factory processes. We got, you know, shipping, receiving. We got quality control. We got a marketing department. Pretty soon we were a real company. And then and remember, this was before before um, venture capital was really a thing. <coughs> and and the uh, and the thing that was really interesting is that as long as we could keep ahead of everybody creatively, we became a power. A power, and pretty soon. We were like 80% of them. We had an 80% market share in the video game business. And, you know, <laughs> and then my engineer now said, you know, I think we can put this game on a chip and hit a price point that we could sell it to the home. And then that took a whole another slice. And then, uh, we did two years of sort of custom games, you know, one or two games in a unit for 70 bucks. And then we decided, hey, maybe it'd be good to, and now the microprocessor had been invented. <laughs> you know, the microprocessor wasn't available in 72. It wasn't invented until 74, 75. And they weren't good enough until 76. And so... The minute there was a microprocessor, then we could use what we called von Neumann architecture, where there was software and cartridges. And so the 2600 was developed. But with that, it was actually a big, big project. And we had to, uh, we had to, uh, raise extra money and, uh, ended up selling the company to Warner. Okay, so the gaming industry, obviously, since you were um, the father of it, I suppose, um, has obviously grown huge, and a lot of people make a living, a lot of money out of gaming. Um, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think it's a great thing. I mean, you know, I, I actually think games in some ways are better for your brain than TV or movies you know, passive versus active. And so, uh, yeah, I think gaming, uh, gaming is, is, is an important foundation to, uh, amusement, entertainment, and, uh, keeping your brain sharp. Yes, there's probably a lot of kids, maybe teens and preteens who probably aspir have aspirations to be a full-time gamer. 
I know my son, he's nine years old. He loves Fortnite and Minecraft. And if you ask him what he wants to do, I wanted him to be a pro golfer. He wants to be a professional gamer. That's really hard for a parent to go to your son. Yeah, go on. I'm backing you all the way in your career to be a professional gamer. Um, what would you say to those parents? Well, you know, it's, it's the same. It's almost the same dynamics. The probability of you being a successful gamer in the esports world is about equivalent to you getting signed up with the New York Yankees or the NBA. You know, if you make it, you can make a lot of money. But it's clear up in the 1% category of the people who aspire to doing that. But then if you don't aspire to be in the top 1%, maybe you're not living out your full potential. No question about it. So it's just the odds. You know, I'm a father of eight. And, uh, and I try to inject practicality into my kids wherever possible. That being said, of my, I've got five sons. Every one of them is in the game business on some level. And, uh, you know, in fact, my, my second son has a Kickstarter going on right now that is, uh, for Polycade. And it's a wonderful product. And he's, He's actually got a business and he's running it and he's successful and he's smart. My oldest son has a micro amusement park. It's kind of a cross between Chuck E. Cheese and Dave and Buster's, but with all bespoke games, customs. And uh, before COVID, he was knocking out of the park and he shall again. And my youngest son has designed several coin-operated games that have been licensed and marketed around the world. So, you know, my other two sons do, uh, you know, one of my sons is working for my um, Versix company that we're doing games that are board games that are mitigated or, or enhanced by uh, the Amazon Echo and the Google Home smart speaker world. So that's kind of a, uh, a synopsis of, of, of what's going on. My daughters are less gaming, though my oldest daughter does all the PR for the, all our companies. So it's kind of a little bit of a family business. I can't hold my tongue on this. I'm going to have to ask it, Nolan. It's not in my research, but eight children. Is that a plan when you're in your 20s or 30s? I'm going to have eight kids. How does that even happen? <laughs> you know... I can tell you how it happened, but not in a, a you know, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I like kids. Um, my wife, uh, loves kids and, uh, we started out by having, well, first of all, it's two different marriages and, uh, serially, um, I was married when I was in, in college and had two daughters and then, uh, you know, after seven years, she didn't want to be married to an entrepreneur. It was too scary for her. And, um, and so, uh, my, my, uh, current wife been married for 42 years, 43 years now. And, um, uh, and she, uh, she likes kids and we had three sons and a daughter and she really had good friend, loved to have a relationship 
and with with her sisters. So she wanted my daughter to have a uh, have a sister relationship from our from our core family. But again, the gods weren't with us, and so we had two more boys. Okay, now you've just raised something here again. Not um, not my initial script, but these are the questions I often like the most. You said your first wife didn't want to be married to an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I know my wife has a lot of frustrations of being married to me as an entrepreneur. What's it like to be married to an entrepreneur, a true entrepreneur? What are the challenges for someone married to someone like that? You have to embrace chaos and unpredictability. And uh, every once in a while, you kind of have to push all your chips out into the table. Some of the chips that would be normally put aside for a rainy day or for house payments. <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of hard. I mean, I think the risk profile for an entrepreneur is much higher than normal and much, much higher compared to a wife and a mother. It's risk. And that moves us. Yeah, uh, I, I, um, I hear you on that one. So that moves us nicely into round two, Nolan. So thanks for getting us through round one. That was fun. Um, and so this is Nolan, the entrepreneur, and more for sort of business and entrepreneurship, etc. cetera. Um, so there's a law called Bushnell's Law, I believe. So can you tell us about that and how that relates to business and entrepreneurship, even though it's sort of also in the gaming space? Well, I actually have sort of three things that they call Bushnell's Law. And I'm not sure which one you're talking about, but uh, probably the most uh, quoted is everybody's had an, a good idea in a shower. What determines success is what you do when you get out of the shower. You know, can you make that idea your own by working on it? And ideas are basically shite that, that, in, and you don't own your ideas until you work on them. And, uh, the more you work on them, the more you own them. And, um, so that's, that's one. The other one is games have to be easy to learn, hard to master. That's kind of the second Bushnell's law. And the third Bushnell's law is if it's fun, it will make money or it can make money. So which, which one were you wanting me to expand? Upon? I want to do them all. I want <laughs> to do them all. No, because <laughs> um, actually I'd made a, um, a note about fun because I really got a sense reading your book that fun was a big part of your culture your companies, your ethos, how, how important is having fun and be, in being an entrepreneur to you? Hugely important. The, the ethic of <clears throat> play hard, work hard is, I think, a part of what every company should stand for. And uh, it's impossible to be totally dedicated and working hard 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 100 hours a week. You have to intersperse it with some downtime mentally. And that's where fun comes in. Because 
the way your brain works is there's what we call our forebrain. That's where we're conscious and everything. But then there's our back brain. And our back brain is working all the time on projects when you're kind of not thinking about them. That's why a lot of times you can go to sleep thinking of a problem and have it solved when you wake up in the morning because your back brain has been working on it all night. And, uh, and so I think that having a company that, that embraces fun and something different actually solves problems as well as having just a better ethics and work, work product. I mean, we, we were famous for having beer busts on the, on the loading deck of the whole company. What people don't realize is we do that because that was what we did to thank the company for hitting quota that week. And, but it had a real benefit that, um, it was a time that employees from wherever they were working, whether in the assembly line or in our county or what have you, could come up to me and say, hey, you know, you know, this is happening and that's happening. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the company would be better if we did this. And you get that feedback in a, in a social environment that is really important because as an entrepreneur, it's kind of lonely at the top. You think it's not because you have all these people working for you, but giving them a, a channel by which they feel relaxed and comfortable in talking about company problems. That's really beneficial to a company. Fixing things that you don't, you know, not fixing things that's unacceptable when you know about it. And this is a good way for employees to do that. Okay, so we've talked a lot about being an entrepreneur. How would you define entrepreneurship? You know, I don't, I've asked myself, are entrepreneurs made or are they born? And for me, I'm not sure. But my first entrepreneurial experience was with strawberries. And my mother, we always had a garden behind our house. And my mother said, we've got way too many strawberries. We're going to have to give them away. I just, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to can some, I'm going to bottle some, but really we've got too many. And then I went down to the grocery store with her the next day and I noticed that there were strawberries for sale in the produce there for 50 cents a basket. And I thought to myself, huh. So I went home, found a bunch of baskets in the garage, picked the strawberries, filled them up, and went door to door around my neighborhood and sold them for 50 cents a basket. And all of a sudden, I made eight bucks in an hour. And uh, I maybe even made 10. I don't remember the exact number. And this was in a world where my weekly allowance was 15 cents a week. So I was... I thought to myself, hey, you know, this is much better than mowing lawns and uh, waiting for allowance. This is, you know, find an, find an outlet, do something, and hire yourself. And so either that was serendipity, maybe I was born to be able to make those connections, but it definitely set me on a path to where I never looked at working 
hourly in the same way again. In fact, I can honestly say I've almost always avoided jobs that paid by the hour. Now, there's something that you talk about, which is entrepreneurs. So um, I, I'm going to quote you here, and forgive me if my source is not great, because the internet's full of interesting things, and I don't always believe sources and quotes. But I did read you quoted as saying, if they can't spreadsheet their business, I don't even want to talk to them. Uh, relating to entrepreneurs. So what's an entrepreneur and what does someone have to have about them to be an entrepreneur? The idea has to fit into an economic framework in order to be, have a successful business. There's a lot of great ideas, but, you know, if if you're thinking that all I need to do is raise some money, and I'll be good. What they don't realize is that this is really not a, uh, I should turn that off. I'm sorry. Hope you can, can you edit this out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to leave it in. <laughs> anyway, um, there, what they don't realize is that when, when you're raising money, they're really looking at you as, are, can I hire you as a CEO? That's really what, what the issue is, because that's what the, the VCs want. And if you can't talk accounting, you know, a CEO that doesn't talk accounting, they'll say, no, I'll hire that. No, you can't. You really got to understand your business from a fundamental level. And so, and then there's, there's this other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs do is they're actually afraid of success. They, they sabotage themselves and they put up these roadblocks of if I could just raise, you know, $140 million to start my uh, car company, I'd be in there because my designs for cars is, are the best. Yeah, you know, give me a break. So my advice is the very first thing you do is to start your business, to start something that hires you. Earn money by providing a good or service. And, uh, and that's one where you... Nobody can say no to you except your customers. And that's, that's kind of the bottom line. And, uh, so I'm, I'm a little hard on entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. I, uh, I say, get your shit together. <coughs> uh, look, we all need a bit of tough love and it's, you know, it's difficult. It's not easy being an entrepreneur. And if you talk, you were talking about one percenters in gaming or sports, I guess people like Steve Jobs, they're 0.001%ers and many entrepreneurs are 1%ers. So yeah. on that note, your book, Finding the Next Steve Jobs, loved it. Obviously, I've already said that three or four times. I'll say it again. Love that very, book. very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we find the next Steve Jobs? How do we find the amazing talent? And please, Nolan, also help us find talent when we're not in Silicon Valley, like some of you lucky entrepreneurs have been 
we're in Peterborough, Cambridgeshire, England, or maybe where there isn't talent in, in a valley? How do we find the great people? I think your premise is incorrect. I think you've got a lot of really great people there. And, uh, and I think that um, culturally, acceptance of failure is one of the problems that Europe tends to have um, at, in general, that people think that, hey, if you fail, that's, that's, uh, that's a bad thing. Failure in Silicon Valley or, or in California in general, is considered a badge of courage. Oh, he's got a little of experience. He's had it. He's he's had a a a, a real you know Donnybrook. Bet he's learned something from that. And so it's kind of like uh, rather than a scarlet letter, it's actually a badge of courage. And. Um... So embracing failure and um, sounds like the kind of person that we want to find. How do we find that unicorn? How do we find that great employee or that great leader? I think, that, I think that you want to look at what they've done, what their hobbies are. Are, are, they, are they a unicorn in their, the way they're doing? Are they, are they a little weird? You know, weird is good. And a lot of times, I mean, I, I had one employee who was just brilliant, except he liked to wear ball gowns to work, <laughs> you know, and, you know, whatever. And, uh, and we loved him and embraced him for that, but, uh, but he was very, very talented. And, uh, I had another guy that, that, uh, literally could not work with shoes on, just couldn't do it, you know? So, you know, is, is, and, and he did some amazing out of the box thinking. Uh, and do you think a lot of people therefore when they're hiring is they look at those quirks and see them as a bad thing and maybe are trying to hire within too tight a constraint of convention? Absolutely. I think it happens all the time. Particularly as the company gets bigger and most, more stultified, they tend to hire people like themselves. And, you know, do you want me to tell you what a, a really disastrous idea is? Please do. <laughs> Democracy. No, I mean, in, in, in a company. If you want consensus on a hire, You've probably always already weeded out the truly exceptional. So you're saying one person should decide, or a small number of people should decide? I think one person should decide with with advice and consent. I'm 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 a really big believer in autocracy. I mean, my way or the highway when I'm running a company. I mean, I I have a vision. I'm putting it pieces together i hire a brain trust so i don't get weird or weirder than i already am but i um i re reserve that veto or that that uh uh imprint um right and, and i'm un unapologetic about it that be the same for strategy as well or are you more open-minded to people being involved in strategy 
Oh, strategy. That's a collaborative effort. You know, strategy and, and, uh, because there are so many factors, you know, market acceptance, cost of manufacture or cost of distribution, marketing cost. I mean, today there's been an interesting shift between today manufacturing isn't the driver marketing tends to be and so one of the things i've been have been instituted is that i don't build a product first until i have a marketing plan and 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 even testing the marketing plan a little bit against focus groups even though i hate focus groups but that's another story <laughs> okay so on your website, uh, it says right now, so moving more into the present, um, you're focusing your time on improving the educational process through online learning. So can you talk a bit more about that and what you're doing now? Well, I, I believe that video games and the things that we know of video games are very, very good for your brain. I mean, you know, when you can get into the flow state, that that's a win for a for a video game. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could get kids into a flow state while they're learning something? And so I've taken a lot of what I know about video games and applied it to various areas of Bloom's taxonomy of learning very, very, very successfully. Naturally, I believe that using some of the stuff that we're doing in both Brain Rush and QVolve could shorten the amount of time a person needs to learn everything that they currently are learning in high school, probably down to six months. More effective, more efficient, cheaper. Hmm. Watch this space then by the sound of it. Yeah. Well, you know, and then, you know, the other part, the other company that I'm working on is called Versix, in which we're building board games, collaborative games, that uh, use Google's Home, Amazon Echo, the smart speakers, which provide sound effects and music and uh, various things like that to a board game, and it enhances it. We've got one that a game that's coming that's called Star, Star Edition, and it's where you are are auditioning actors and actresses. And they say these funny lines, and it's hilarious. I've never laughed so hard. And uh, it's gar- it's a board game. It's a party game. It's 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 a it's a game that uh, we're going to be on Kickstarter later on this year. And and, uh, and what we want to do is see if we can crowdsource content through some of these platforms. See, I think innovation in marketing and in fundraising. And in crowdsourcing some of the work, it's kind of a new thing we can do in this crazy world. And uh, and in our games, we can actually play it over Zoom. So that's even more fun. I understand there's been quite a lot of talk for quite a long time, like maybe a decade plus, about there being a, a biographical documentary or film about you and your life. Is that true? And is that happening? Yeah, it's, I don't, I think it's happening. Uh, you know, 
Hollywood works really, really slow. You know, I mean, and and uh, the fundraising and and hiring the actors and the actresses and and uh, and figuring out everything. My wife is actually on top of it more than I am. I I say, hey, if it happens, it'll be great and it'll be fun. But uh, and then there's a script, and I've given thumbs up on the script, even though they take a little bit of poetic license on certain areas. But you know, that's what a movie's about. Right. So, should we move into round three, the quick fire? Sure. Now, you can answer these as quickly as you like, but if you want to go into detail on some, that's also fine. But this will be our last round. Um, so, uh, is it true that in 1974, Steve Jobs showed up at an Atari, at Atari in Sandals and demanded a job interview and was hired for $5 an hour? He was hired, but I think it was more than five an hour. Uh, I think prevailing wages at the time was more like, I would bet seven, but I'm actually don't remember that, but that's true. He, he demanded to be hired and, uh, he turned out to be a great employee. What people don't know about Steve is he could outwork anybody. He was a very, very dedicated person. Um, why did you turn down, if this is true, corroborate it and then tell us why, did you and why did you turn down Steve Jobs' offer for a 33% stake in Apple for 50000 I wish you hadn't reminded me of that, but that's a true story. <laughs> but um, it was because the same reason. I, um, I didn't think Steve was good CEO material. I think that um, – and I, I – think that like back to the future had i done it apple computer may not have been successful because instead of me i turned him on to uh valentine who introduced him to uh, mike markla who was sort of adult supervision and mentor that turned steve into a into a ceo and uh, i don't think i'd had the time to really do that um it took somebody that was in Apple at the time to turn Steve into the, the, the CEO that he turned out to be. That's the only, that that's, that's the only way I can live with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was just thinking you were going, cause I've just Googled how much is Apple worth? <laughs> 1.3 trillion. It has a bigger market cap than the GDP of most countries now. Um, no, I don't want to inflict any more pain on you, Nolan. Um, well, you okay, know, though, next question. I, I got to say, though, being there's a point where if you're too rich, you lose your life. You lose your humanity. You, you can't walk down to the corner drugstore and, 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 you know, having to go around with armed guards and, and be basically isolated. I'm not sure how much money I would need to be able to to do that. Anyway. What's your favorite game that Atari's ever produced? Game called Tempest. And Asteroids. I, I, I flip between those two. Um, love them both. Um, Apple or Android? 
Apple. What's your biggest regret? I think selling Atari when I did to Warner. It, um, though, again, it's bittersweet. I just kind of felt that my life was settled, and that's when I spent a lot of time finding and, and marrying Nancy. I'm not sure I would have done that if I'd still been in the trenches uh, at Atari. Uh, but there was, my life kind of got easier when I was doing Chuck E. Cheese. It was not nearly as demanding. Because, you know, all of a sudden having a few million dollars in the bank uh, changes your mental outlook on a lot of things. How did it change your outlook? Did it mean you, what, you just had a less of a work ethic and a less of a drive, do you mean? Well, it was easier. You didn't have to spend all your time thinking about how you're going to raise money. You could only focus on, on the business. And uh, that was a lot easier than, uh, than constantly having your hand out to uh, keep your companies funded. I mean, Atari always had sparse capital. And that always made it stressful. Okay. So what was the regret part in selling Atari then? Well, I think, I think Warner really cocked it up, kind of threw out the, the ethos and the, the, uh, the style and the, the uh, corporate culture. And I think we had a tremendous corporate culture. And it, uh, it was totally dismantled and, and Atari turned out to be toxic and, and uh, ultimately um, destroyed itself. I mean, I think it's the only time where the market leader all of a sudden abandoned the video game business. I mean, you know, how stupid is that? Um, how do you think Tim Cook did taking over from Steve Jobs? I think Tim is a very, very good custodial manager. I don't give him high quality. I mean, Apple after Cook is not an innovator. It's it's basically a follower. They they follow very well and very tightly, but they I can't think of an innovation that that uh, that uh, they've done. I mean, Samsung's as a as a phone provider is more innovative, um, and uh, I I but he's done a good job, you know. Stock market doesn't lie. One point three trillion. What's the best advice you can ever remember receiving? Stay, stay care, stay scared. You know, you know, only the paranoid survive. That's an old Gordon Moore. Um, my mentors, I had, I had some great mentors, and. Uh, the other piece of advice is get mentors, you know, really, really capable people. And uh, because they have, they have solved a lot of the problems that you're about to face. And uh, like my first men real mentor was a, uh, my, my boss at the amusement park, who basically gave me a, a sweat based MBA, if you would, you know, about how do you run an organization? I mean, I was 
I was 22 years old running a $3 million operation division of an amusement park. Had to hire, fire, manage budgets, labor percentages, merchandise percentages. It was like it, it was, a, it was, it was a, uh, he threw me into the bottom end of the, the deep end of the pool. <coughs> so I've just written Sweat MBA. I think that's a great title for a book. <laughs> Sweat MBA. I love that. I'm, I'm going to have to credit you if I ever write it. Um, can you remember the worst advice you ever received? Forget this video game thing. Get a real job. <laughs> is there one thing that you feel is really wrong with the world that you'd like to change? I think that um, I think that there is too much dishonesty, and I'd like people to go back to uh, really, really respecting free dialogue, free expression, and honesty. If there was one person alive today that if I um, had this person as a guest on The Disruptive Entrepreneur, you would stop everything you're doing to watch them or listen to them, who would it be? I really like Peter Diamandis, you know, the, the X-Prize guy and, and you know, that. I like... Uh, I like a whole bunch of people that are very, very smart. Um, Victor deGrasse Tyson, I, I, I love what, you know, the cosmos and I'm fascinated with quantum mechanics, even though I don't understand it. I mean, quantum mechanics, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that quantum computers are going to be a big thing, and I've been struggling to try to understand it. The only thing that makes me halfway keep me, keeps me from suicide is people say, people who understand quantum mechanics don't. <laughs> this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. I ask my every single guest the final question, what does disruptive mean to you? Doing things that have never been done in a way that fundamentally changes outcomes forevermore. I think that um, I'd like to look mathematically, there's things called singularities. And singularities are things in which they wipe out the history while going forward. And I think true disruption is a singularity. Is that a little too geek speak for you? <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. There's there's definitely a couple of sound bites there uh, that um because we like to make little compilations of what our guests have said about um being disruptive and yeah I, I could see some of those there. I love it. Um, where can we follow you? Um, obviously I've talked a lot about finding the next Steve Jobs, which is a book I suggest everyone should get that you've written. Have you written other books? Do you, are you active on any social media where we can see what you're up to? Are you promoting anything? I'm on uh, LinkedIn um, and I, I, I have my own kind of little website. I don't keep it as up to date as I should. It's Nolan Bushnell, you know, dot com. Um, and um, I, I tweet on occasion uh, but not that much. Um, I probably should do more, but you know, I get, I get two things. I've actually got two more books that I've written that I have not published. And I'm thinking of probably pushing on 
One is a science fiction book that I love, but I got to get it well edited, and I haven't done that yet. So I, I've got to find somebody who is a good science fiction editor. And then I've got one on education that uh, that I've actually got an, a, a PhD that's editing it and will be co I've, I've told her she can be a co-author with me on it. I wrote it five years ago and just didn't get around to getting it out, but it's, uh, it's really prescriptive of how we fix education for the world. Well, we'll keep an eye out for those. For now, um, make sure you follow Nolan on LinkedIn uh, and your surname, B-U-S-H-N-E-L-L, correct? Correct. And Finding the Next Steve Jobs is a brilliant book about Nolan's business journey and hiring and finding great talent. So, Nolan, it's been a real pleasure for me. Um, I'm a fan, so hopefully I played it quite cool. I love your work. I'm really grateful that you took the time. I think your backdrop is fantastic. Is this your um, sort of studio um, where you mad professor for a living? This is where I can solder. I can reach to the left and get a capacitor or resistor. I can get an Arduino on my right. I've got even pneumatics in here. So if I want to have some air activated things, I can do it. I've got um, all kinds of weird things, like I've got my stuff set up. You know, I can say, uh, um, Alexa, turn on blue. Did it. It did it. I thought it was not going to do it for a minute there, but it did it. <laughs> you know, I, no, I no. Change it. I got to change it because one of the bulbs is when I set up the sequence, it's actually green. There's a blue one over there that's a little washed out but uh yeah, it's it i play i play here I'm, I'm a technical player no then i want to say once again thank you very much it's been a pleasure to have you on the show